this bonus episode of the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this special bonus Ask an Expert episode, I'm joined from London by Dr. Faraz Al-Niyami. One of the most prolific and well-published dermatologists in the UK, if not the world, Dr. Faraz has written and contributed to over 160 publications, has delivered lectures in over 50 countries, and is on the editorial board of multiple dermatology journals. A globally respected opinion leader, Dr. Faraz was who I felt was the ideal doctor to answer your questions on acne, acne scarring, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, and pore size. Now, away from our regular brand founder conversations, I am asked so many highly specific questions about the skin. Given that I am an educated consumer and by no means an expert, it would be highly unethical for me to even attempt to address those skin concerns, which is why I have long insisted on taking those questions to a medical doctor. This Ask an Expert series is giving you, the Glow Journal audience, unprecedented access to medical doctors, professors and dermatologists. And while the series is sponsored by Candela Medical, doctors legally and ethically have to remain completely objective in interviews like this. This series gives you, the listeners, completely unbiased expert answers to your most specific skin questions questions that I just can't answer myself. As mentioned, this episode is sponsored by Candela Medical. However, all of Dr. Faraz's views are entirely his own, and as per any interview with a doctor, you will hear absolutely no specific product recommendations throughout this episode. As per recent episodes, this conversation was recorded remotely, So I have made the entire episode transcript available on glowjournal.com so you can read along as you listen, should you wish to. To find the transcript, simply visit glowjournal.com and search Candela Medical. In this episode, we have taken the questions that you submitted on acne to Dr. Faraz Alniami. From what those pitted acne scars actually are and how to treat them, through to whether topical skincare can really help hyperpigmentation, whether or not pores can truly be shrunk, and if there is or if there isn't a definitive treatment for blackheads. So we're covering quite a few different topics today and a lot of the questions that I've been sent are quite specific. So I thought we might start with a broad one. What is acne? Acne is a common inflammatory condition and it's um, essentially a a condition that is um, affecting the grease glands in the skin, which we call them the the sebaceous glands. So So the clinical presentation will be excessive oiliness of the skin, the blackheads and the whiteheads, the red uh, pimples that are referred to. And and they're essentially all related to the grease glands, the sebaceous glands in our skin, where they're overly active, they uh, produce a lot of oil, and as a result, you get a lot of inflammation. So that is 
in, in very simple terms what acne is about. When we talk about acne scarring, there seems to be two categories or common concerns. We've got pitted acne scars or the dark pigmented spots that tend to linger after a pimple has gone, commonly referred to as scars, but actually they are post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So perhaps we start with the former. What are those pitted scars and what causes them? So the pitted scars are essentially the, the sequelae of, of inflammatory acne. So once the acne is, is over, sometimes in severe cases, whilst there's still ongoing active acne, you can still see the pitted scars. But in general, we tend to see the pitted scars once the acne phase is over. And essentially, in simple terms, it's just destruction of the collagen, the matrix of the skin. There's just been damage to the makeup of the skin as a result of the, the inflammation that is caused by acne. So I, I mean, sometimes I just give the analogy that acne is what's happening. The inflammation is something like a civil war within the skin. And as a result, you get the destruction and the damage to, to the matrix, the buildup of the skin, <clears throat> predominantly the collagen. And that's why you get the pitted scars. So it's basically the damage done as a result of the inflammatory process. A number of listeners have asked if topical skincare can help with those pitted acne scars or if laser is essential. Okay, so that is a good question because um, there are some reports, some there are some studies published that topical treatments can prevent you getting from mm-hmm. pitted scars, but not active treatments of the pitted scar. Um, One ingredient, which is retinoic acid, that is widely internationally known as tretinoin. Um, Now that has shown to increase collagen and improve on collagen. So in some mild cases, in some very mild cases of pitted scars, there might be an improvement and the patients might see an improvement. But yes, I agree, the best and most effective treatment for pitted scars will be with lasers. But there is a place for creams in terms of prevention and possibly as a synergism with the lasers. Okay, and what is the best laser treatment for those pitted scars? So that depends largely on the severity and of the, of the pitted scars and the background skin color of the patient. So in lighter skin type patients and in severe cases of pitted scars, the fractional technology, but more with the fractional ablative one, like the CO2, the carbon dioxide, will be the best treatment option because it gives better and faster results. But in patients who are very dark, that could lead to one of the uh, complications, which is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which we're going to be talking about. So in those cases, the fractional non-ablative, like the the Norlus device from Candela, which has a specific Mm -hmm. wavelength called the 1550 nanometer. So I'll keep it simple. And I'll say for the lighter skin types and the more severe cases, the fractional ablative laser, such as the CO2. And for the darker skin types, milder cases, the fractional non-ablative will be better. Okay. 
A listener has asked about treating acne scars that are upwards of 15 years old. Would you approach those differently, sorry to say, a fresher scar? Not so much, really. I mean, uh, the duration of the scars, uh, in my experience, doesn't necessarily uh, relate much to the response, of course. If If the scars are relatively fresh, sometimes they are a bit easier to treat, and then there might be a place for the topicals to also contribute a little bit. But for those old scars, the, uh, the, the improvements that one can, can, can get from the topicals are probably going to be very, very low, if negligible. Um, but they can still expect treatment, uh, good results with the lasers. So the duration of acne scars, in my experience, uh, is less of an issue. Another listener has asked specifically about keloid acne scarring and the treatment options that are available. As she says, she's tried derma rolling, but has found that the results with that have just been temporary. So this is important. So it's important actually to classify the type of the acne scar, because Mm -hmm. I think uh, classifying the exact type of scar means that you're going to tailor the treatments because there are different types of scars. Now, keloids and hypertrophic scars are different to pitted scars because in pitted scars, there's destruction and loss of collagen and skin matrix. This is why the skin is pitted. The opposite happens with hypertrophic and keloid scars because there is excessive too much buildup of the collagen. So what you want to do is you want to break down that that collagen. So um, steroid injections are are simple, straightforward, and can be very effective. And for those red hypertrophic or keloid scars, we can reduce the redness by using a vascular laser like the pulse dye laser. Mm -hmm. And we can also combine that with the fractional ablative, the fractional CO2 laser with the steroid injection. We might move on to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation because that was something I was asked a lot about. Firstly, what is it? And secondly, why do so many of us suffer from it? So, I mean, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, if we literally just translate the Latin term post after inflammatory, as I said, is the, the process of inflammation. As I said, it's like a civil war in the skin, <laughs> hyper excessive and pigmentation darkening. So post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is basically increased abnormal pigmentation, abnormal as in not the, the, the usual um, background skin color for the patient following an inflammatory process. So that could be acne. Acne, for example, is a common inflammatory condition. And as a result of the inflammation, we get this hyperpigmentation. And because it was after an inflammation, we call that post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. What it is, is essentially increased activity of the melanocytes, which are the pigment cells that we have in the skin. As a result of the inflammation, they have been turned on. They produce more melanin, which is the pigment. Some of that leaks into the deeper part of the skin. And as a result, we just see that as increased pigmentation. So it's all the results of the inflammation causing stimulation of the melanocytes to produce pigments. The reason why we get it, I mean, there are two key reasons. One of 
one of it is it's much uh, more common in darker skin type patients. So patients who have skin types three and four, so those will be, for example, those from, from Middle Eastern, Mediterranean background or Southeast Asian, sub Indian subcontinent. The darker the skin, the higher the risk. And I guess the other risk, the reason why you have it a lot in Australia is because you have a lot of sun. Because one of the key important measures in treating and preventing post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is adequate sun protection. Because when we have inflammation in the skin, these pigment cells, the melanocytes we call them, they're very active. And their activity is sustained by ultraviolet light. This is why it's absolutely important that we always um, advice on meticulous sun protection and the use of sunscreens. Now, sometimes even with, with all the good faith in Australia, in a country like Australia, where you, where you have strong sunshine, that could be a contributing factor. Sunscreen's my favourite topic. We could do another three hours on that, I think. Yeah. I received a lot of questions from listeners about at-home treatments and topical skincare. What ingredients should those looking to fade post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation be looking for? Okay, I mean, I think the first thing to, to say is which ingredient to avoid, and that would be uh, the hydroquinone. Um, okay. So the hydroquinone is a bleaching agent that sometimes is illegally uh, available online or in certain stores. The prolonged and, uh, use of hydroquinone can cause some, some long-lasting problems in the skin. So I think the first thing I would like to, to warn is not to, to use hydroquinone without medical uh, prescription and without medical supervision. I think that's the important thing. Because we, so. that, we see that a lot here, for example, where from certain African shops and African stores, high concentration of hydroquinone can be purchased illegally and without medical supervision this can uh, this can have um, uh, disastrous effects on the skin so that's the first thing i'd like to say in terms of the ingredients there are a number of ingredients that can help with lightening of the skin such as kojic acid soy arbutin niacinamide thiamidol, uh, vitamin C, uh, and even the retinols can help too. So retinols, vitamin C, arbutin, soy, kojic acid, these are some of the common ingredients, or, or licorice extracts. These are some of the common ingredients. We call them cosmeceuticals, so they are non-prescriptive. They can be purchased uh, from from chemists or from beauty stores, and um, they can in some cases be effective in hyperpigmentation with a high safety margin. Uh, it's also important to use uh, sunblock, of course, and sun protection that protects against the uh, UVA and UVB. I've had another listener ask: Is prescription retinol more effective for reducing acne pigmentation than acids? Um, so do you mean the, uh, which acids, because... I'm assuming she's meaning sort of your AHAs and your BHAs. 
Okay. So uh, prescriptive, so retinols as such are non-prescriptive. The only variant of, the only prescriptive one is the retinoic acid, which is retinoin. And yes, that is strong. And in general, that also depends on the concentration. So prescriptive retinoic acids comes in three different strengths in a low concentration, medium, and high concentration. The side effects, such as dryness and peeling, will also depend on the concentration. But yes, with if you're using the high concentration prescriptive retinoic acids, in general, in my experience, it tends to be more effective than the lower concentrations, AHA and BHAs, that are available in the market. You mentioned vitamin C earlier. I had a few listeners who have asked how long it should take for vitamin C to make a difference to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and what, I'm sorry, would the concentration of the product affect how long it should take? Um, So this is a very good point and I actually have a lot of uh, particular interest in vitamin C. Excellent. Yeah, and have published (laughs) on it. So uh, vitamin C as such, is, it's more important when it's combined with, <clears throat> with a sunscreen in terms of a synergistic protection against sunlight. So when someone has pigmentation, such as post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, the vitamin C is usually used alongside the sunscreen to improve, strengthen, enhance the sun protection. Because when you combine vitamin C plus sunblocks, you get much better sun protection. But vitamin C on its own has some relatively weak lightening activity. So if you are just using the vitamin C for pigmentation, it may take six to eight weeks before you will notice a reduction in the pigmentation. It is not as strong as the soy or the arbutin or the kojic acid in terms of the lightening effect. And definitely the concentration is important because for vitamin C to be really active uh, and give results, it should be at a concentration of around 10 to 15%. Another listener says that she has tried vitamin C, but she's noticed no difference to her acne scars after several months. Would a clinical treatment be the next best step for her? Yes, I mean, vitamin C, as I said, it's not a treatment for acne scars, certainly not sure. a treatment for pitted scars. Mm-hmm. But if she's meaning the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and the brown marks, then um, the vitamin C is still useful alongside the sunblock, at least in preventing them from getting worse. But yes, the next stage will be a more active treatment, such as chemical peels or lasers. And what are the best laser treatments available for fading post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation? The best treatments available will be with the new lasers, pigment-specific lasers, which are called the picosecond lasers, the P-I-C-O, the Pico. um, From the Candela device, that would be the Pico way. That's what I get. It's my favourite thing in the whole world. Would you treat pigmentation on the body differently to the face? I had one listener write in asking specifically about hyperpigmentation on her knees and on her elbows. So 
high pigmentation on the knees and elbows can sometimes not necessarily just be purely increased pigmentation, but it can also be some form of thickening of the skin and some, some friction, long-term friction that can lead to skin changes and darkening of the skin. In that case, um, treatments generally require more treatments compared to the face, and it may not necessarily respond as well uh, just like any other pigmentation, let's say if it's on the back or on the chest. So specifically on, on, on the elbows and knees, it can also be a thickened skin and some effects of friction. And as a result, it's not just all pure pigmentation. But in general, yes, we use the same device. We use the same machine, the PicoA, that we will treat, except when it's off the face, it requires more treatments and the response tends to be a bit slower. So the other way to look at it is that treatments on the face tend to be somewhat easier and the response is seen faster compared to the body. So that's the other way of looking at it. A topic I was asked a lot about was pore size, I suppose due to the link between blocked pores and acne prone skin. Firstly, is it at all possible to actually shrink the pores yeah i mean so the term open pores in a way it's a misnomer because pores by definition are open and if when we get closed pores we get the clogged pores and we get the blackheads and the white bit of marketing so by definition (laughs) yes so by definition the pores are open Mm -hmm. but what we refer to when we say open pores we are actually referring more to dilated pores where they're more visibly seen and they're wider and dilated. Um, So it is possible to tighten them. I wouldn't, I mean, shrink them or tighten them so that they become visibly less wide. This is not very easy because it's a physiological behavior of the skin to have the pores open. but treatments such as the fractional handpiece of the PicoWay and the fractional technology and controlling the oil production, like using the prescription uh, retinoic acid, so the topical retinoic acid prescription, plus series of microneedling or fractional lasers can help tighten the pores. But the patient or the person may need long-term maintenance treatment for this. Another listener has asked, do pores get bigger as you age? I assume by bigger, she's meaning more dilated, so more visible. Um, it is possible, although it is not necessarily a an aging process as such, because there are many um, <clears throat> people in their 60s or 70s who don't, who not necessarily have dilated pores. But dilated pores, the risk of dilated pores is high with excessive sun protection, excessive sun exposure with limited protection and with long-term oily skin. So what happens is that if if you are prone to acne and oily skin, um, so chances are that when you are in your 40s or 50s, the pores are, are wider and more dilated than when you were in your 20s. 
So it is not so much just the pure chronologic aging, but it's more related to the duration of the oiliness of the skin in that individual that will manifest with wider pores as they get older. I had a few men submit questions all around why men's pores can often look so much larger than women's. Why is that? Because That's a good question. And that is because if we just get back to the very first question on what is acne, mm-hmm. and as I said, it's what we will call the, the entire unit around the grease gland is called the pilosebaceous unit, which is essentially... The, the hair follicle shaft attached to a grease gland and coming at the, the pore. So that's the surface. Um, and that unit, the sebaceous glands, are under influence of a number of hormones, notably the male hormones, the androgens. This is one of the main reasons why teenagers, when their, their hormones are, 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 are spiking, uh, that they get acne. So men tend to have more androgens, more male hormones than female. And as a result, these grease glands and the pores are wider because of the increased activity that is related to the male hormone. Also, the skin in the man is thicker, and therefore some of these changes are more noticeable. Uh-huh. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question. Should male skin be treated differently to female skin with regard to minimizing the appearance of the pores? Um, so what I find in clinical um, practice from my experience that, that yes, <clears throat> male skin with dilated pores generally tends to require more treatments and perhaps, I don't want to use the term aggressive, but with, with higher settings. So yes, if, um, so it is still with the same technology, which will be with the fractional technology, be it the fractional PICO or the fractional ablative or non-ablative treatment, but males, men with dilated pores require more treatment sessions at a higher intensity. One listener has asked, do pore strips actually do anything? Well, I think it's a loaded question. I think they, well, I think they strip off the most superficial layer of the epidermis, which is called Mm -hmm. the stratum corneum. So they strip, they strip off something, which is the dead skin cells on the surface. Um, hence, they might just temporarily give um, the impression that the skin is a bit luminous uh, and clearer. Uh, but in terms of long-term um, solution, I think I think their benefit is very limited. While we're on pore strips, let's talk blackheads. I had a lot of listeners wondering if there is a long-term solution or a way to prevent blackheads is that whenever they seem to get rid of theirs, they eventually pop back up. Yes. I mean, because again, that is a physiological process in mm-hmm. some, in some individuals and in some people that's the physiological process and it still indicates some form of activity at the pore and the ducts of the pilosebaceous unit. So the way to prevent them is to continue long-term exfoliation. 
So a facial wash with salicylic acids or glycolic acids um, will, be, uh, will be needed. It may not necessarily need to be every day because some patients, if they use it every day, the skin get, can get dry, but at least two or three times a week using a facial wash with a salicylic or a glycolic acid is, is one thing to do. The other thing to do is to use either the AHA or BHA creams or using a retinol. So generally speaking, if I have patients who complain of ongoing blackheads, I, my regimen will be to give them a facial wash with an acid, to start them on a retinol. And then of course, there are some other treatments that they can do occasionally, such as some facials or microdermabrasion to just keep the, the, the pores healthy and um, that can help too. What about whiteheads? Is there a long-term solution or even a preventative for them? We approach them in a similar fashion, the, whether mm-hmm. they are whiteheads or, or blackheads, because the blackhead is just, the, the colour is just related to the oxidation of the melanin uh, in, the, in, in, in the blocked pores. So whiteheads and blackheads, we approach them in a similar fashion. Ah. An overwhelming number of the questions I received were about acne on the body. Is your approach to the treatment of acne on the body different to facial acne? Yes, to an extent. And that is um, that acne on the body in general requires what we will call systemic treatments, which means we, we, we tend to treat with tablets and, and tend to treat from within because acne on the body tends to respond less well to the topical creams compared to the face. So in general, with acne on the body, um, the vast majority of patients, especially those with moderate to severe activity, will end up on, on tablets to treat their acne. One listener asks, why do I get acne on my neck and my chest, but not on my face? So I think the first first thing is to, to make the correct diagnosis and to make sure that that is indeed acne and not some of the other conditions that can look similar to acne, which can affect pre- predominantly uh, the, the neck and the chest. Like there are certain um, yeast infections that can give some spots, especially if one is wearing tight clothing or there's friction and a lot of uh, sweating. Uh, that can give an appearance of a rash similar to the acne spots, but it might just simply be uh, related to the yeast. So I think that is one thing to bear in mind, that it may not necessarily be just acne, it might be something else. Um, The other reason is, again, so sometimes friction from clothing can cause Mm -hmm. a a form of small acne-like spots. Uh, those, for example, people wearing tight denims can find it in the lower back and in the buttock area as well. And then lastly, it relates to the grease gland activity. In some uh, males, the grease gland activity on the chest and the upper back is much more pronounced compared to the face. So it is possible that one can get activity in the chest or the neck and the back, but not on the face. But I would First, make sure that the correct diagnosis is is being made. 
Can laser be at all effective in the treatment of acne? Yes. And again, that is something that I uh, have a lot of experience in and done some research on and, and, and published. There certainly is a place and a role for lasers and acne, although from my experience, it's always better to combine it at least with, with topical treatments, with creams, because the effects will going to be better. But yes, in selected individuals, in some cases of acne, there's definitely a place for, for lasers. A listener has asked if oral treatments like antibiotics and roaccutane or things in that family are the best way to manage hormonal acne. They are certainly one way of managing hormonal acne. I think Mm -hmm. the best way of managing hormonal acne is, first of all, um, finding out whether um, the cause of the hormones can be um, corrected like if there is an underlying hormonal condition, whether that can be treated with with certain uh, tablets, um, and whether, for example, sometimes the certain contraceptions can either cause hormonal acne or can treat hormonal acne. So um, I think establishing the cause first and see if that can be neutralized or eliminated, that would be the first first way. And then my preferred choice really will be either for a contraceptive with anti-acne effects activity or Accutane. Antibiotics as such are probably discouraged from pure hormonal acne for two reasons. Reason number one, because if it's hormonal acne, it tends to be something that tends to last long and we really want to limit the use of long-term antibiotics. And the second reason, reason is we try and not rely heavily on antibiotics for acne because we now understand that they can have harmful effects on the gut and the microbiome, mm. which again is not necessarily very healthy for the individual. So unless the cause for the underlying hormone Uh, imbalance is not being able to be neutralized or treated, Accutane would be better than oral antibiotics in the management of hormonal acne. Perhaps a nice sort of all-encompassing note to end on. I had one listener ask, what is your number one piece of medical advice for dealing with breakouts? The number one medical advice will be um, is to ensure that you are using the right skincare regimen that will uh, exfoliate the skin that will uh, that will can ha- that can benefit from reducing the inflammation that you identify for yourself whether certain factors such as stress or diet which is something we didn't really touch upon particularly like excessive dairy products and excessive milk and high carbohydrates can sometimes Mm. also worsen acne and sustain it. So my medical advice will be make sure that you check that your diet is not causing some of this. Make sure that you are on the right facial wash and skincare regimen that can keep the skin healthy, uh, exfoliated with the pores open, 
and potentially using something like a retinol um, on long-term maintenance to make sure that the pores, uh, the, the acne spots don't come back. Perhaps uh, the only thing I would uh, mention again is um, since we're covering on acne, mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned briefly about the diet, which I think it's something that is going to become more prominent and more important because if you look at the demographics of acne sufferers and the vast majority of them are young, mm -hmm. millennial, which means that they are also very tech savvy and they have access to online information. And therefore I see that they are much more aware with um, the, the healthy microbiome and the healthy guts and the, the gut skin access. So I think, I think, I think um, understanding the role that diet can play in some individuals is important. The other important thing is the use of makeup. Yes, that's but, a big one. Yes, particularly in, in young women where the advice is not to use occlusive oil-rich mm. makeup, which can potentially clog up the pores and, and cause these whiteheads and blackheads. So the advice is to use non-comedogenic, non-comedogenic, oil-free makeup, preferably mineral-based. And it's one of the few joys of isolation is that we're, <laughs> we're all kind of going a bit more barefaced. And, and you know what? I have some patients who actually say their skin is getting better. And I think mm. that's because they're using less occlusive makeup. Certainly. I think everyone's skin went a bit off kilter at the very beginning because I suppose we were all so stressed. And now that it's sort of become routine... We're all settling down a bit. Yes, absolutely. So I always have a, a, a chat about not just the topical and the oral treatments, but I also like to talk about the skincare, mm. makeup use and the diet, because I think that's important to what we have been discussing. That was Dr. Faraz Alniami of London's Harley Street, who you can find online drfarazalmiami.co.uk You can discover more about Candela Medical including the peak away treatment that I mentioned in this episode at candelamedical.com forward slash au or on Instagram at candelamedicalanz To read this interview you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal if you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast.